welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this week's episode, Tarun and I learn about the JPEG project with founders Maria Paula, Sam, and Trent. We chat about the art-NFT intersection, the role of a curator, algorithmic curation, and the meaning of combining digital art. We also learn about where JPEG fits into the ecosystem, the problems they are aiming to solve, and where the team sees the space evolving. At the end, we get a chance to brainstorm about the potential for ZK NFTs, a project close to my heart. But before we kick off, I want to remind you to check out the ZK Hack online event. It's happening now and consists of weekly workshops about key ZK tools, as well as having an advanced weekly puzzle competition. If you want to jump into the space professionally or even just for fun, this would be a great event to join. It runs for seven weeks every Tuesday going until December 7th. There is a fantastic community forming around this event, so do jump in. Also, if you're looking to get into the space professionally, you may want to check out the ZK Jobs Board. There you can find ads from top ZK teams looking to hire. I've added the link to the ZK Hack and the ZK Jobs Board in the show notes. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Anoma. Anoma is a multivariate and multivariable bartering protocol that enables bartering among N parties of arbitrary assets, including NFTs, all with zero knowledge privacy. Anoma removes the requirement of a double coincidence of wants or direct matches between very different asset types. I've added the link to co-founder Awa's Twitter thread in the show notes if you want to find out more about this project. Quick note, the ZK Validator was an early investor in the project, and Anoma is also one of the partners on ZK Hack. Be sure to stay tuned for Anoma's first public testnet in which you'll be able to play with Anoma's proof-of-stake, intent gossip, matchmaking layer, and custom validity predicates. You can check out Anoma's code base on GitHub and quick note, Anoma is currently hiring. So if you're interested in finding out more, check the link in the show notes for their jobs or look for them on the ZK jobs board. So thank you again, Anoma. Now here is our deep dive into the JPEG project. Today, Tarun and I are chatting with the team from JPEG. I want to welcome Maria Paula, Sam, and Trent to the show. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having us. All right. I think before we kick off, I want to learn about all of your backgrounds, but I also want to first define, like, what is JPEG? What is this project? Maybe one of you want to take it. Yeah, JPEG is a curation protocol. Um, so we're really looking at building some more cultural infrastructure for the space that looks at these NFTs as cultural objects as opposed to kind of foregrounding them as financial assets. Um, and so how does that process help create a more sustainable long-term value system for the space? And now let's find out a little bit about each of you. Like, so we're, we're going to be talking primarily about NFTs in this episode. But yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about what led you to this. Because I mean, I'm going to maybe start with Mary Paula. I've known you for years. We actually started in blockchain around the same time at almost the same organization. You were at Web3. I was at Parity back in 2017. Tell us your journey to JPEG. Right. So when we met, I was actually working at a protocol at uh, Polkadot, and I've been working in communications uh, for a very long time. 
I quickly switched to Golem. And in Golem, actually, I was, you know, giving out grants uh, at the first edition of the Ethereum Community Fund. When by chance and in the Tokyo hotel where they shot Lost in Tokyo, I met a lost guy that was actually Matt Condon, uh, who is, you know, the so-called grandfather of NFTs. Um, since I am a culture addict and I love art, you know, after hearing some of the use cases for NFTs, I was like, this is something that I actually really like. And finally, you know, a use case that I can actually relate and maybe work in a less abstract way than, you know, my, my work with infrastructure. So, you know, I started doing little things in the space, continued to communicate things about NFTs with Matt, uh, also with Billy Rennekamp at Clover's Network, then through the first NFT conference in San Francisco, which was fabulous. And after that, I founded uh, East Berlin and the Department of Decentralization in Berlin, which is a grassroots organization that does a bunch of stuff, including a hackathon. And we have a strong art department. Uh, through the art department, we started exploring a little bit more NFTs and blockchain art, um, wrote a paper, uh, organized a bunch of shows, you know, both digital and NFTs. Actually, I had Tarun in, in one of my shows in mm -hmm. Osaka. And yeah, we kept on exploring and, you know, our second paper was published in February 2021. I had mm -hmm. a lot of trouble making it timeless because the NFT boom was sort of blossoming by then. And after that, I felt that, you know, this was an opportunity for me to leverage everything that I had learned in the past years of uh, free labor to around <laughs> NFTs. And uh, I just met Trent via DMs. You know, we bonded about blockchain art um, since he's an art historian. And he invited me to this Discord where, you know, they were setting up um, gallery with a very awkward name that we have deprecated. So I'm not going to even mention, going to mention it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, then I met Sam, uh, honestly, on the first call, we absolutely vibed and uh, we conceived one of the funnest parts of the protocol, which is the gift shop. And yeah, the rest is history. Very cool. You mentioned, you just mentioned ETH Berlin for anyone like this is very much a legendary event. I was there. It was great. So many teams met there. I know it's just like in the lore of the bear market, ETH Berlin and ETH Berlin too were like the legend. So yeah, just to give some context to some of our listeners. All right. Now I think it makes sense for us to learn a little bit about you, Trent. Trent, how did you kind of get into the space and then cross paths with Maria Paula? Yeah, so my educational background is in art history, as MP mentioned. And then for a few years after that, I worked in advertising. I've always really loved being like at this intersection of kind of the economic layer of society and the cultural layer of society. And in kind of early 2019, my brother Brock and I kind of teamed up and started working on various DeFi related stuff. So we built some yield optimization protocol, um, ended up moving into some MEV related things in August of 2020. We, along with Will Price, Dan Elter, Clinton Bembry, um, launched a, an algorithmic stablecoin called Yam, which is a kind of legendary saga in its own right. I stayed on with that community for about uh, six, seven months, just kind of like building up those contributors, getting the community back on its feet after all of the kind of shenanigans that, that occurred there. And as I was scaling back my time 
at the beginning of this year, 2021, in kind of January and February, I just fell in love with some of the NFT space. I think it was really Pax the title drop that showed me how NFTs can be this like really interesting conceptual investigation into value and like questions about what NFTs even are. And so that was kind of my entry point at which I fell down the rabbit hole and just started having so much fun with NFTs. It was like, that was the first time in a long time the internet had just provided this kind of unbridled, weird source of entertainment. Um, and so anytime that's that's happening, it feels like there's something, something really special. So I started kind of casually thinking about what I could potentially do. I was having conversations with MP in Twitter DMs. I was just having conversations with Sam in Twitter DMs. And we were all kind of focused around this idea of noticing some things in the, in the blockchain space or the NFT space, I guess, that just felt a little off to us in terms of, again, like how financialized these things were and like the, the foregrounding of that, some of the presentation and display of these NFTs. And so we just started jamming on uh, various things and JPEG is, is what came out of that. Cool. That connection between this DeFi background and NFTs, I mean, this has been a theme that's come up a few times with previous guests that Tarun, you and I have interviewed. Why do you think there is that connection. I can't speak for everyone, but I think for me, at least, it was like I got into DeFi because I love some of the ideology around crypto. And it's this extremely exciting kind of like formerly fringe uh, industry to work on that, that was just where all the like cool, weird, smart people were were hanging out. But I'm like not actually a finance guy at heart. <laughs> but that was the only way you could work in crypto was like to do the finance stuff. And so as NFTs have come about, it's all of a sudden, oh my gosh, we can actually like play at the cultural layer of society. And that's just for me personally, where I want to be spending my time. Interesting. At Tarun, I want to throw this to you. Do you have any theories as to why there does seem to be that connection? Yeah, actually, one of our previous guests wrote a Twitter thread this morning about that, which is Luis from Fingerprints. But uh, I think it's sort of similar where I think a lot of people first not shitty crypto products that were decentralized were usable. Because I think like prior, like everything from 2017 and before was mainly a centralized service. Uh, that had like good UX, right? Otherwise, it was mm. you using a wallet that would half the time brick itself, or you would lose your funds, or dot dot. dot. There's tons of yeah. <laughs> negative user experiences. But I think like Uniswap and the lending protocols were the first time that you actually had like usable, you know, not not like for the masses, but you know, if you cared enough, uh, UX that was not crappy. And I think that like opened people's eyes to things. But then I guess once you kind of got into that, you realized, hey, there's like something more palatable about this world when there is attachment to objects versus like strictly purely speculative meme coins. Although, you know, look, people still love that. People <laughs> still love the speculative meme coins. It's not like that's going away. Um, mm, interesting. All right, Sam, let's hear a little bit about you. Tell us how you got involved in this space and how what led you to JPEG. I'm very curious to hear if you have a DeFi background too. <laughs> 
I do not have a DeFi background okay. at all. I don't understand the first thing about DeFi uh, <laughs> at all. And have been meaning to learn more, but just can never find the time now because I'm too busy with NFT stuff. It's funny, like Trent, I, my educational background is uh, in art history. I actually come from a kind of quite academic background, but we we both come at this from completely different directions, starting at that point, and then Trent comes from DeFi, and then I come very much from the traditional art world. My background is as a curator and an art historian and a writer working in London in the traditional art world, in the sort of modern contemporary art space, largely working for the last few years freelance, doing bits and pieces for a number of different organizations, some of them uh, non-profit, some of them private, but largely working in the in the sort of like uh, museum sector and non-commercial gallery sector. I remember sitting down for dinner in 2019 with a friend of mine who's been very deep in crypto for a very long time and him handing over his phone to me and saying, you know, I just bought this piece of crypto art. I was like, what's that? And it was this, you know, image of like a lion or a leopard or something. And I was like, oh, cool. And he was like, yeah, it cost me 20 bucks. And he explained to me what an NFT was and he bought it on Super Rare. And he kind of suggested that we look into it together. And so I spent the weekend looking at, the, at Super Rare, like scrolling through it. And I was like, this is clearly really interesting, but I just don't have the time. I was like finishing my master's at the time and I was like applying for jobs afterwards. And it just, you know, wasn't wasn't the time for me to get deep in it. Fast forward two years and the beginning of this year, like the first week of January, I remember having a conversation with somebody about something completely unrelated and it triggered this memory of the gap conversation I'd had and of NFTs. And I was like, oh, I want to check out how that's going. So I did. I went on to Super Rare and started looking around. <laughs> you were like, what's going on now there? I wonder if it's grown at all. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what's going on. I started looking around and like, you know, it, clearly it had. The prices were considerably <laughs> higher than they had been when I'd looked before. And I just became really interested in it. And my background is really like academically working on conceptual artwork. And there was something about NFTs and the kind of division or distinction within an NFT between sort of the tradable or kind of exchangeable like a token and the associated media and the way in which, you know, there was something kind of very like immaterial about it that just resonated with me and made intuitively a lot of sense. Um, so I kind of, I appreciated it on that level and wanted to get more involved. So I started working with an artist who I knew, whose work I thought was sort of conceptually aligned in some way with the technology while being completely, you know, it was digital photography, but it, it was sort of conceptual digital photography. Started helping him produce work and, and sell his work, market his work. And, and while I was doing that, I started meeting people in the space. Uh, Trent was one of the first people I met. Luis from Fingerprints Dow was one of the first people I met. A uh, number of other people who, you know, are now doing really exciting things in this space were really welcoming with me. And my first impression after a couple of months was, okay, you know, this is clearly a very exciting market to be in. At that time, I wasn't buying or selling NFTs, but like there was no kind of like culture other than that, other than the market. And it especially was seeing a lot of people uh, who were big collectors calling themselves curators. And it was very clear that the idea of curation was completely conflated with the idea of private collection. And actually, historically, that is a relationship that um, it is interesting. And many important private collections running back through to the 17th century have actually become some of the most important museum collections today. But, um, you know, obviously, curation is more than that. It's more than just buying things yourself. 
And so Trent and I, and then, and then MP on that first call, we sort of trying to think about how we could kind of facilitate that, you know, people should be able to express their interests or their expertise and things without necessarily having the means to own those things themselves. And I guess this brings us to JPEG itself, which you defined just before it's, it's more of a curation platform. Maybe we can dig a little deeper into what that actually means. So I think people are familiar with marketplaces, NFT marketplaces where you buy and sell NFTs, you can mint NFTs there often, you can add, you know, percentages, you can like choose sort of the attributes of the NFT, mint it there, sell it there in a marketplace. But how is JPEG and curation different from that? I think one of the early kernels of a of an idea or an insight that we had around around JPEG was looking at the way in which the NFT market was functioning, you know, and still functions largely today, but particularly kind of in the in the first half of this this year was seeing this mimicking of the traditional legacy art markets value systems kind of being crossed over into this this NFT ecosystem in which the taste making apparatus is essentially uh, comprised of massive collectors who have, you know, both the capital and the reach to determine value and the large auction houses that have the reputation built up that, you know, everything that they put out is considered to be of quality. So you see that, you know, particularly probably with like art blocks curated and super rare, right? Reminded us just of, you know, of Gagosian and Pace and David Swerner and, uh, you know, Sotheby's and Chrissy's, Saatchi and, you know, this, this system in which it's only this kind of small gated community that is able to actually determine what's cool and what's valuable and interesting in the in the space and we just thought that that didn't align with a kind of crypto native approach to culture um and that rather than these very few kind of high signal data points that we had the opportunity to create infrastructure that allowed anyone to participate in this process of of meaning making and of taste making. So with JPEG, we want to kind of make that process permissionless and decentralized such that everybody has the ability to express their opinion and to make these connections between NFTs that this piece and this piece, when they are put next to each other, create this this new form of meaning and this new context for for understanding them. And so, I think in the in the long term, that's really where we see some of some of this going. That it's really the community as a whole that starts to form these connections and and form these kind of new systems of cultural value. Would you say? I mean, is the problem that you're highlighting here the idea that like during the sale of any of these NFTs, there would be like publicity about them and people would see these images, but once sold and once just like in a collection, they kind of just sit there. Is this sort of like, well, what, what happens to them then? Is it, is that in any way something you're trying to tackle? Well, we have to think of JPEG in the context of, you know, what we want for the future of NFTs. And as Tarun mentioned as well, I think we're beginning to see that NFTs are, you know, one of the use cases that really are, you know, able to scale and to make an impact. Uh, so at JPEG, of course, we're focusing on, you know, what gives value to those NFTs in the long term. You know, everything right now is very short-lived. It's, you know, we're living in the moment, uh, you know, you, you take a flight and you miss like how many drops. Um, it's insane. So we're trying to you know, add a little bit of 
pause and contemplation, but at the same time, we're creating, you know, on-chain records, which will hopefully derive in more value to the NFTs. This is a very sort of like, I, I don't want to say visionary because I don't consider us visionaries, but, you know, this is an idea that comes from the assumption that we really believe that NFTs are the future of culture and we want to create the different, you know, records archiving and other the other infrastructure towards towards supporting that value. Yeah, and I, I do really like this idea that um, kind of both of you are talking about that once something is bought and it's just sitting in a wallet, like the kind of interaction potential with that NFT really goes down unless you're just like looking at someone's entire like wallet collection on OpenSea or um, if they've made that wallet available through something like Gallery or, or something like that. But providing more opportunities for interaction with these these NFTs um, and allowing anyone to to kind of have that interaction regardless of whether they actually own it or or not. Another thing to add is about you know the way that the mind operates as well, uh, which is you know as I mentioned you know very like uh, short attention span. Everything happens uh, you know at the same time, and we want to make them understand that there is you know there's a certain narrative and a certain value around you know all of these universe that's happening, and that we also you know come from a different place. Um, as Trent said, you know, uh, he comes from DeFi. I come from, you know, infrastructure. We have been building uh, with the values of decentralization, permissionlessness, and other different elements in mind. And the NFT people don't really understand those values just yet because they are just coming in flux and, uh, you know, they don't understand the, the contest, they don't have to do as, as well, you know, collecting NFTs is a lot of fun, but trying to educate these people around, you know, like no world gardens, you know, like a drop might be a drop, but, you know, you can still access things. You can, mm. uh, you know, you can create galleries in a permissionless way. I think that's also really important. Hmm. Yeah, I guess one thing that is different when you have sort of like group or crowd curation versus um, sort of institutional curation is the notion of provenance for like, you know, like when you go to an artist's website, right? Like they'll talk about their pieces and they'll talk about like which collection the piece was in and like what theme that was kind of curated by and try to show that their portfolio has sort of this like tree structure of like these are the things that are all related in one line these are the things that are all related in another line this is the things that are all related in another line in a kind of socially curated art world it seems like it'll be messier so how do you view sort of like an artist being able to convey provenance or like thematic things they've worked on when it might be like a little more messy at least like you know i, I don't know enough to know if, if it will have sort of the same sort of like lineage where like you present at the same types of museums or the same sort of festivals versus, um, you know, it's out there in multiple places. I don't, I don't know if that totally makes sense, but. I wonder if Sam, given your curation background, if you have any thoughts on that one. Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing about JPEG is, you know, if an artist wants to display the work that they have made in the context that they wish it to be seen in, that that's possible for them. They can be the curators of their own work. But on the kind of provenance question, the concept of provenance is obviously spoken about a lot 
in the blockchain art space and the NFT space. And obviously, you know, blockchains uh, provide this means of having this record of ownership and ownership history. But obviously, as you say, provenance is much more than ownership in the traditional art world, traditional cultural world. Provenance is also the history of the entire lives of those objects everywhere that they've been displayed, what they've been displayed alongside, all of these things. And at the moment, there is no means to track that. And that's one thing that we're really trying to facilitate. Um, The fact that it's maybe more casually done in some instances online and on JPEG uh, compared to just purely institutional, the fact that that provenance history may not necessarily be just, you know, that it was displayed first at Gagosian and this show and then 10 years later in this retrospective at MoMA uh, is just, I think, a byproduct of the sort of slightly different nature of these kinds of things. But also the beauty is that I think there's potential for both things to happen. I mean, you know, looking at some of the sort of traditional institutions that are organizing NFT art exhibitions that are beginning to explore that. I think the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, for example, is putting on a digital art exhibition which will include NFTs those tokens will have been displayed there, but then maybe, you know, two months later, they'll be displayed in somebody's gallery on JPEG by, you know, by an anonymous collector or by an anonymous enthusiast. And so it's quite nice that you have this much more kind of variegated uh, history of these things. And I, I think that's just, yeah, an, an inevitable byproduct of things being online, right? And this fundamentally being kind of internet culture. So, you know, it's inherently more democratic and more distributed in that way. One thing I guess maybe is, and this this is sort of a, a very hazy course analogy, so apologies in advance. But one thing is I feel like the search engine problem for online art is much harder than it is in reality, right? Like I, I do feel like people in, in normally, right, they'll go to a festival or they'll go to like a certain set of exhibits and they'll kind of have like be able to at least like find roughly what they want to look for. Whereas I feel like there isn't really a particularly good way of finding new art, right? Like, I mean, for instance, for on OpenSea, the things featured on the front page get like almost like a million times more views than everything else, right? Which is just kind of like this weird thing because they don't really do great curation. They just kind of like pick, I, I, I actually have no clue how they pick those, but like it feels like the features are like not super thought out. And so, like, I guess that my question is, like, how do you how do you feel like you can get around that if people can't? There's not really like an easy way to search for, you know, search for certain themes or search for certain things you're looking for, other than following individual artists. Because I think it's like it, it makes sense if you're like following an individual artist, they have a gallery in in say JPEG or like some type of curatorial provenance in JPEG, versus like, hey, I want to find everyone who is doing these types of things right now, right? There's not really like a an easy way to do that. And I, I guess my question is, do you view your role as somehow in helping in that? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, the OpenSea thing is a phenomenal testament just to the power of curation in, in some ways, which I think is kind of worth worth highlighting, right? There, There is this massive impact that when someone with super high reach and high credibility says, go look at this thing, then like a lot of people end up, end up doing that, which is interesting. I think one of the things we're also, we've also been toying with is the kind of way in which we encounter curation in our daily lives, like 
almost constantly, right? Like whether it's the Morning Brew newsletter curating news or like Google page results, like curating information, right? There are these different ways in which you see curation showing up as human generated and as algorithmically generated. And I think in so much of our digital context today, like it is mostly algorithmically generated in which, um, you know, it's taking all these data inputs and taking your personal data and then finding things that, that fit that kind of match. And I think there's an interesting potential for decentralized social networks and decentralized information systems in which that curation starts to be much more human driven across the board with algorithms starting to kind of help at the edges as opposed to the reverse in which it's like mostly algorithmically driven with human data helping at the edges. And so I think there's some really powerful elements to search and discoverability that start to emerge as curators come onto the JPEG platform and start to create connections and exhibitions according to specific themes, adding that context of, you know, this is what I'm seeing in this piece and this is why I like it. And, you know, pulling out things like keywords from those descriptions that can potentially be used to start to create this kind of second layer of categorization, as well as, again, this this idea that, you know, Sam is a conceptual NFT art connoisseur. And so you can just basically subscribe to follow his conceptual art gallery that he curates on JPEG and adds to consistently to essentially, you know, find those new pieces that that Sam is discovering because he's putting in that kind of cultural labor to track that part of the the market. And I am someone who's interested, but is unable to kind of put in that much work to it. What you describe there about that front page of OpenSea, I mean, it reminds me a lot of like when YouTube first started and YouTube had this front page and it would highlight these videos. I actually at the time worked in music and a music video I had worked on was highlighted and the impact was insane, right? Like it wasn't MTV, it wasn't a big music channel. It was YouTube, but actually I think the impact culturally might have been deeper, like it really got into people's eyes. And that was actually done. I later met the person who had, by chance, I met the person who had been the curator at YouTube putting that there, like was going through all the stuff, was finding cool stuff. It was like one or two people at the, you know, very early on. And then there was always conversations about creating sort of these like video dashboards. And I know that like there were people who created lists and stuff like that. But I feel like, at least on the YouTube example, like it fully became dominated by the algorithm. Why do you think, and, and this, I mean, I don't know if, if you can answer, but like, do you think that in this decentralized version, it doesn't also become replaced by an algorithm, just possibly an open source algorithm that we all like agree to? I don't think that's necessarily bad. You know, if algorithms can help us, you know, sort of determine value and you know we can collectively decide on you know what we define as valuable then you know if it's a human or an algorithm you know I work in tech so I I won't say no to the algorithm (laughs) obviously (laughs) you know as JPEG we would really like to create some kind of labor stream that brings awareness towards uh, the people doing the work and the curation And I think this is really important 
because uh, oftentimes in NFTs, you actually hear a lot from the collectors and the creators, but you don't hear about, you know, the pe like the people that are also in the art world that, you know, the, the curators, the galleries, uh, the events organizers, you, you don't hear from them, you know, in, in our NFT world. So our intention is also about raising awareness about different kinds of labor around the cultural industry as a whole and around NFTs as new cultural industry that we're seeing. So both things can coexist, but I will say no to the algorithm. <laughs> okay, got it. So this this idea of the human creation, this is sort of like step one. It doesn't mean that it's going to like only ever be that. Yeah, you know, when, when we were actually deciding what were we going to do about JPEG, who we were as an organization, as uh, co-founders as well, and what, uh, which ones were our goals, we first had to define what is curation. And curation to us is second order creation. So this is very connected to the question that you just asked, because as we see it's so valuable and we see it has so much future, then we definitely want to, you know, make sure that we give attention and intention to the whole process. Yeah, and I think I think the algorithms, their purpose in in something like JPEG's protocol is to really empower and allow for then human curation to occur, right? One of the great things about algorithms is like they can take in massive amounts of data and like data far into the past, right? Like I think a lot of the ways that people are discovering NFTs today is like in a Twitter thread or on Twitter, which is just so ephemeral. And so that element to which through a immutable source of provenance, what someone has curated and discovered in the past can continue to play a role in what is being kind of determined as interesting or valuable today is, I think, um, a really powerful thing that allows us to hold this history in a certain way and not just like always be moving on to the next thing. Is there any project that you would call comparable to what JPEG is? Or do you feel like it's a, sort of a new class of conceptual projects? I think we're building a new class, but also, you know, as Trent mentioned uh, just now, and I was actually, you know, going to connect to his point, um, what we're building at JPEG is only one of the pipes from the cultural infrastructure that we actually want to see. And we hope to uh, be able to be complemented by other groups building different, different stuff as well. I think that you know, the people that are building, you know, the museums of this new cultural industry are absolutely fantastic. Mocha is doing a great job. Um, they're also, you know, doing curation, but it's about, you know, the curation within their community and it's about the curation of the assets of each community member. Ah. So that's complementary. What was the name of that project you just mentioned? It's Museum of Crypto Art. Okay. Mocha, I think you Mocha. said, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So I think they're doing a fantastic job. Um, we are also really in awe of platforms like OnCyber that are not doing the kind of curation that we're doing, but they're, you know, they're allowing curators to create fantastic galleries with, you know, like great VR experience as well. So we're hoping to, you know, be one of the building blocks. And we're also hoping for all of these platforms to come and test our work and, you know, obtain this record of on-chain provenance from us. It's sort of like what we were, uh, what we were building in Web3, you know, and that sort of diagram uh, that uh, you see very often. Everything should be stackable and the modules should be combined. 
but you know, there's no monolithic solution because we otherwise we would go back to centralization. Doesn't yeah. that doesn't really make sense? That makes sense. Just a question though. Now, I, I kind of want to understand how this actually works. Like, how does I, I think I understand conceptually what this is? Basically, I'm guessing you have like a, a site or some web element which like collects a bunch of NFTs, but are you actually doing anything on chain to collect them? Or are you just going to get them from like IPFS and like bringing them into one place? Because I mean, they are public in a way, like the links to the images you could technically track down. Yeah. So the way the the protocol works currently, and we have some very fun updates kind of planned in the near future, which, you know, we won't, we won't talk too much about right now, but Essentially, right now, the protocol exists on Ethereum L1. And so you show up to the JPEG website. We have a allow list for some kind of alpha curators who are creating exhibitions currently. Those users show up to our curatorial tooling interface, and they upload NFT token data to a sub-registry that essentially functions as this curated exhibition. And then they push that exhibition on-chain, writing all of that data to Ethereum L1. And so that includes you know, the contract address, the token ID, any sort of curatorial notes that they want to include for kind of you know their additional context that they want to uh want to record very cool and so this is where like art being displayed together it's not just that it's displayed together on on a website but it's actually linked somehow together on an on-chain commitment exactly and so in the future as these kind of exhibitions stack on top of one another we're really building out this social and interest graph in which you can start to look at the connections between curators who have these NFTs coming off of them um, can look at the the relationships between the curators, between the curators and NFTs and NFTs and NFTs, such that in the long term, the, the vision is to then be able to actually have on-chain reputation for these curators, on-chain scoring for the NFTs themselves based on, you know, how many times has this NFT or this collection been curated? Was it all in one week and around launch and then never curated again? Or is this collection getting curated consistently, you know, every week for a year? Who was mm. the first person to curate this collection? Who who was in there before it was cool? So having that data set on chain, permissionless and accessible to anyone, I think just just is really starting to lay some of the groundwork for how a future of decentralized social networks can can start to look and can start to to play out on chain. And I think that that idea is one of the things we're we're most excited about. One of the coolest elements of this whole NFT thing is the degree to which we've started to put culture and put social networks on chain, right? The whole Board Ape Yacht Club group is essentially a social network that that exists on chain, and like you see the relationship of these human beings existing on the on the blockchain, which is just such a fascinating shift in the last twelve months. Twelve months ago, when you were interacting on chain, it was like you were interacting with this kind of nameless address. There was no feeling of a human being on the other side. And now we're living in this world in which it really feels like when you're interacting on the blockchain, there's kind of a human being on the other side. One interesting thing I think of like what you just said was, and perhaps this is sort of kind of like the principal agent thing that you're hoping changes, is that 
the sort of backdrop of the current art industry doesn't emphasize as like the donors and the museums and not really the curators themselves, right? You don't walk into a, a gallery and you see like the curator's name, right? You mainly see like funded by the XXX Foundation and like this museum's first attempt at YYY theme. I'm just you know, ma- making up placeholders. <laughs> but the description you're saying also makes it sound like part of the goal is to actually make the curators sort of the principal agents versus like the museum or donors. Uh, would you say that's a reasonable characterization? Yeah, I would say that's reasonable. Although it doesn't need to focus in at the individual level, right? I mean, you know, could be more cooperative, could be cooperative broken down into those constituent individuals, I suppose, you know, so the idea of having like five people co-curating a show together and like obviously, you know, uh, putting those those five identities at the fore or a DAO curating from their multi-sig or whatever it is and then the reputation is accruing to a sort of organisation um, of, of multiple individuals. So it is and it's an interesting point. It's true. I mean, from my background, like, I do actually know who a lot of those curators are and, you know, I notice their names on the wall, but it's true that they're smaller than the VP name or the whoever it is who sponsored the thing. And, and um, we do definitely want to put the focus on the people who were performing the labor as well as on those things that they're curating. Um, but it doesn't have to be sort of necessarily as individualistic. In For sure. Yeah. I, I, I guess I meant, you know, the entity, whether it's like a DAO or an individual or whatever, there is some notion that you have to have a identity to the entity that's doing the curation. The entity could be made up of many people, but it, it's it's just somehow that it flips the narrative from like, hey, it's like whoever provided the capital gets like the biggest sign, which maybe in, in, in Britain, it's less obvious. But here, I feel like in the US, the museums definitely put like the donors at like 10 times the size. <laughs> For sure. We're definitely more interested in like who's doing the work, right? Um, And I mean, it crosses over into some of the like retroactive public goods funding conversations that have that have been going on. Basically, um, I think uh, Vitalik talked about at uh, ETHCC in relation to some of this um, decentralized social media stuff as well that like you can actually look back at what someone did in the past to figure out whether they did a good job. And so less focused on, you know, who the individual is and more in terms of like what they're contributing to the network is, I think, a really, a really interesting element. How do you imagine sort of those that reward system, though? Because so far what we what I've understood it as is a it's a curation space for people to make this thing. But I don't really understand, like other than the glory or the fact that they can point back on the chain and be like, I put this, I was the first to find it. What else do they really get from this action? And maybe this is the future of your protocol and you don't want to tell <laughs> some of it. I don't know. <laughs> That's also okay. <laughs> I, I think there are a number of potential systems that we're, that we're still considering. I mean, one of the ways in which we're definitely oriented towards the future is 
TCR type models, um, token curated registries, which were a huge meme in kind of the 2017, 2018 timeframe. They were the, they were going to be the thing that is what Ethereum was used for pre pre DeFi. Remember this? Um, Why have I not heard this word in so long? Well, oh my god! Well, they, <laughs> Can you define it again? I actually don't know if I remember. Token, wow. Token curated registries. So essentially, they're these systems in which you know it's just a registry, so a list. The way to get on that list is through some combination of like staking and challenges and you know proposal periods and very governance heavy type stuff that also back then was all curating off chain things. And so it like became a total nothing burger. I mean, it, they just went nowhere because it felt like this like business maintenance task. I mean, we have so much better context for, you know, how governance is is actually acts in this space now. And like, we know Mm -hmm. that if you're asking a community to do something like monitor a spreadsheet, assuming that they're economically rational actors, like it's a lot of times not going to be super, super effective. And then of course, like back then we didn't have anything on chain to curate. So it was all this kind of like necessary disconnect of off chain on chain stuff. Whereas now, I mean, there are like 25 million NFTs, probably more now that exist. Like there's stuff to curate on chain these days. And so that's kind of one avenue that we're looking at in terms of like how some of this reputation that you build up on chain kind of actually interacts with the the protocol and kind of how you interact with that that system. Um, I also think like the glory is also a very powerful motivator, especially in what is kind of fundamentally a cultural and social space, right? Um, I mean, people have an innate love of curating and showing off their their expertise and their, their knowledge. in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That, that not only just gives them kind of an internal satisfaction, but also, uh, you know, helps grow their, their following and, and notoriety. Um, so I think kind of at this stage, we're really more focused on empowering people to kind of experience and reap the benefits of, of that more social curation for curation's sake elements with some of this more classical crypto incentives in the background and in, in kind of in development. It has to be added uh, that we do have royalties for curators. Um, <laughs> I think that we have so many good ideas for them that we forgot that tiny thing. But yeah, we have royalties for curators. Um, uh, but we also have like huge ideas like Frances. What kind of how do you get royalties, though? Like, how does that work? Because like to me, like, where's the where's there a, a monetary exchange? You're basically just saying, like, here's a bunch of things that I think are cool. Boom. Like, that's the thing I'm not completely clear on. Like, are people paying to see your curated collection? Rather than royalties, it's really more like commission fees. So currently in the protocol, there is like marketplace functionality. I think in doing some soul searching and, you know, looking at the space, it didn't make sense for us to try and build an aggregated marketplace um, on top of building a curation focus layer. Um, we really believe that like the proper way to, to build a crypto native kind of platform and protocol is to focus on one layer of the stack, do it really well and integrate with 
other players who are doing that that same thing. Um, and so most of the, you know, most, not all of the marketplaces that, that exist today have the ability for curator splits. Um, and we think that that trend is, is only going to, to continue such that if you are curating a thing that is for sale on a marketplace that we have integrated and a sale occurs, that a commission will then flow through to you as the curator of that, of that thing. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. That was the little piece that I didn't fully get there. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But as you said, MP, there may be many more ways to incentivize people to be these curators. I I mean, one thing I think I've started to see, which I'm not sure exactly if it's a a form of monetization, is that a lot of DAOs will do in-person or like real-life events with some sort of gating from membership. And I'm sure that curators could effectively do the same thing where there's like events that they throw for all the people who who follow them and stuff like that. And and those events could be online, they could be IRL, but it does feel like the curators can have their choice. There's like a lot of ways once they like have the infrastructure to not have to like think that much about it. That's interesting. I mean, in the case of what we've been talking about, the the form of the J the the NFT. Not the JPEG. You guys are JPEG. <laughs> the form of the NFT, the form Look, of the no NFT GIF, itself. No GIF or SVG hate allowed here. All right. This is a judgment free zone. This is a judgment <laughs> free zone. Judgment, so judgment free zone. <laughs> um, but what I was trying to say is um, NFTs, the NFTs that we're thinking about, they are relatively simplistic, right? Still like NFTs, ERC-721s, maybe ERC, what is it? 1155. Yeah, yeah. So like just on a previous episode, I interviewed this group. Uh, They're over on Kusama. They're building this like really like a very different kind of NFT project with all these other characteristics. Like it's basically like a little bit advanced as itself, like the possibilities, the characteristics, the associations. And I'm wondering like right now you guys are very focused. It sounds like on L1 Ethereum, but are you looking around at other types of networks basically where you could potentially do more like the nfts themselves do you see them growing in their own functionality like themselves i would say we're clearly in a multi-chain world now right um and that's definitely something that like we want to to support i mean some of the artworks and culture that we're seeing emerge on on other chains are really exciting and clearly have a lot of traction, great communities. Um, and we absolutely want to support like where that culture is happening and making sure that we're properly kind of tracking and recording that history as well. I think in general, we do view that like Ethereum L1 is kind of a focal point or like headquarters of where all of this stuff is happening. And we don't really see that likely changing. In terms of the kind of other NFT standards that that you might see popping up, um, that's a little bit of a harder question to answer. When you start to introduce things on like outside of this, this kind of cultural home base that don't conform to that, it has the potential to be a kind of weird outlier situation. And so I, I think in general, we do view, and MP can probably talk a little bit about this, that 
there is a kind of need to conform to some of the standards that have been established um, within Ethereum. So, you know, basically when you're thinking of the artists, they want to show all of their legacy. If you have to actually refer to the websites uh, to see all of what's being minted around different chains, it introduces a huge problem you know, because they really don't have a way of indexing anything. That's why I think that, you know, everyone should start adhering to the Ethereum standards instead of reinventing the wheel, because there's already an overflowing market in Ethereum uh, slash Polygon and maybe Optimism and, and whatever. Solana? Solana is, you know, part of the problem. So, <laughs> okay, it's different. Is I mean, Solana, is it a very different code or is it in any way emulating the ERC? No, it's totally different. Totally yeah, it's completely yeah. different. Completely different. I, I can imagine because it's on really different right? standard to the point that uh, FTX had to make their NFT marketplace support like transfers between the two. And they were like, oh, we're going to do it in a week. And then it never happened. So. So imagine if that's, you know, if that's one of the problems and right now it's mostly, you know, generative PFP projects going on in Solana. Imagine the problem that it brings to, uh, you know, creators and to the whole ecosystem. Like right now we have a huge problem with OpenSea being like a huge garage. Imagine when the other, Mm -hmm. you know, when the artists are trying to gather, you know, their collections from Hen, their collections from Super Rare, they're like... It's a compatibility mess. And, yeah. you know, it's mm-hmm. going to be like the problem is going to just like blow out of proportion. And that's why, you know, I believe that they should be trying a little bit harder. Yeah, because it really doesn't serve the the creators if the creators are minting assets according to token standards that don't have longevity. And it becomes this, like, they have this work that for this brief period of time was according to this standard that never got any traction. It's like that work ends up just being lost. So it's like, there's some really careful consideration that kind of needs to to happen around there for the creators. And like, of course, something like Solana probably has the capacity to create their own kind of ecosystem and standard. And like, it, you know, it's it's not going to be a, a huge issue, but as those things proliferate, it's you know it's that old comic of like oh we have fourteen standards, we need one standard to unify them all. Now we have fifteen standards. I have a weird question for you. Do you know if the original CryptoKitties are actually listed on OpenSea? Can they be listed because they're not ERC seven twenty one? They are on OpenSea. Yeah, you can view them. I'm not sure how or how they bridge them, but uh, yeah, they're definitely there. Okay. I, I feel like they, they just made custom support for them because of like the historical context, not it, it's because of how yeah, famous yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah. Well, also, like in the bear market, it was like there was no other NFTs for a while, right? Like, so, like, what else are they going to do? Like, they're building their platform. They need someone to trade something. And that's- wait, I thought, I also thought that CryptoKitties were the first. CryptoKitties are the first ERC 721. CryptoPunks weren't, but I'm pretty sure CryptoKitties were. At least that's yeah. what is always yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always understood it not as, or maybe it was done before formalization, but I, I have always been under the impression, I'm, I'm sorry, we're just going to like leave this on air. <laughs> Someone out there knows. Um, I, I do have four against one right now saying that it's it, it was ERC-721. Yes, it, it is. It is. It, it, was, it was definitely 721. I was just looking at the source. It's it's definitely. I mean, actually, in fact, the EIP for seven twenty one mentions CryptoKitties. Yeah, but I always thought. Anyway, I thought it had been slightly different. Yeah. 
No, I think, in fact, CryptoKitties is what led to the standard because the 721 standard came from Dieter and like the Dapper or now Dapper Labs people. The earliest ones were not, I think, based on this because basically, basically they tried implementing it and then they needed to make the ERC. That's like what the, the ERC suggests. But then maybe another example would be something like Flow, what Dapper Labs ended up doing. So they have their own blockchain, and it's an incredibly popular NFT blockchain, but just so removed, it feels like. Do you know, are they using an ERC-721? Well, I mean, they're using Move, right? So they're using a totally different programming model. So like, for instance, you don't need like storage in the same way and stuff like that. But, but no, 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 there, there's, they, they have their own, but... You know, they don't really have a bridge yet. And it's its own it's its own extremely segregated ecosystem, I guess, would be how I'd describe it. That was my actual follow-up question to what you were saying, Trent, which is this idea of like or MMP. It was this idea that like if you are only on one chain, obviously it's a lot more simple, but if you are on multiple chains, would it be important then that bridges and bridging systems also are taking into account some of these differences? Because maybe they're not right now, they're focused more on like simple transfers or something like that. But yeah, is this something you're kind of paying attention to, the bridges between the different ecosystems? Yeah, some of my intuition is that most of the time you don't actually need to, except in the case of transfer or sale, actually move an NFT from one place to another to do, you know, a thing with it, to play a game with it, right? All you need to do is prove that that asset is owned by the the user. Uh, so I think there's been some interesting work being done for kind of cross-protocol ownership. One of the, the early contributors to JPEG, Sam Baugh, is, is working on something called like zero x essential which does some of this cross protocol ownership tracking uh, so i think there's something potentially interesting there it ties into what we're doing in that all we're concerned about is the the data the nft token data right like the asset doesn't need to be attached or, or included in in anything it's just like we're just trying to chronicle this this data history as opposed to you know actually interacting with the the assets themselves got it do you picture the curator having a DAO of its own we sort of said a DAO could be a curator but like in this model that you're proposing like would it be possible to like do a fractionalization of that one curated show like would you basically take these different pieces make this collage basically of of different kinds of art that reference each other like i don't know if this is something you're kind of considering i'm just sort of trying to understand the ways that this role could actually develop its own community potentially like or does it have to have a community that is then curating We've definitely thought about the idea of like, okay, you could create an NFT of this particular exhibit. Yeah, exhibition. Um, yeah, yeah, which is super interesting, super fun. That's one of the big ways in which we diverge from, you know, some of the other kind of companies doing anything related to displaying NFTs is that we have this on-chain component, which does offer these interesting possibilities in terms of DAOs being curators, in terms of smart contracts being curators. Um, it does just open up a, a really interesting kind of dynamic there. As Tarun was alluding to earlier, this degree to which, you know, a curator could have some sort of kind of curator social token that gives that community some 
access or role in the decision-making process, ownership in you know, that NFT that of the exhibition that's created. I, I think we're at a stage where, I mean, there's like a million fun things to go do. Yeah, experiments to <laughs> yeah, go yeah. do. Um, yeah, we're focused on getting kind of some of the, the most essential uh, kind of like beta product things in place now and then as we as we will build up that community kind of seeing where people want us to to take this things because there's so much fun stuff to to do here it's it's interesting because you know like a few years back or maybe just last last year you know the the meme of you know we're opening everything to the community was like a sign of you know the the core team being a little bit lazy or not knowing what to do. But right now, actually, you know, you see how, you know, people are building on top of uh, certain things. And loot is probably, you know, the best example you have of that. So, you know, if people can create this sort of like meta metaverse, uh, I don't want to use that word right now <laughs> anymore <but laughs> or anymore uh you know if people can build on top of you know what like this crazy idea of a uh, dominic then there is the capability of you know people creating different universes ba based on you know someone else's creation or their own mm. you just brought up something mp what what do we call it if we can't say metaverse anymore, we really need to brainstorm some new ideas. Facebook. <laughs> no, I know what that is. I know what that no, no, is called. She's saying, she's saying just switch. <laughs> we call, we call we it Facebook call it now. Facebook. I mean, they culturally they... appropriate us, so we culturally appropriate exactly. them. Okay, we call ourselves, we're working in the Facebook. I am working on Facebook. I feel like we're helping their brand more than hurting their brand with that, though. I just think we need a new world word for the world that we're working in. I don't, I don't love Web three world either. I I say it, but I'm always like, Ugh. Web three is terrible as well. It's terrible. The internet. <laughs> <laughs> People have been throwing out ideas on on Twitter. I oh, really? see a lot of like cyberverse, hyperverse, hyperverse. Um, Ooh, I like hyperverse that. is is it's it's very late nineties. I like it. <laughs> I, <laughs> Look, I, I get that everyone loves Neil Stevenson for, for coming up with this, but we should just find a new, like, sci-fi totally. novel instead of, like, literally regurgitating <laughs> the same yeah. fucking boring sci-fi totally. novel over and over and over again for also, all the fucking words. It's, like, I just very by chance read Snow Crash, like, last year, just because I've been, it's been on the list. I finally got to it. It's not a great book. It's got some great ideas. And sorry, I'm going to, like, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but, like, it's not what I expected. I just don't get why. Why have we just like decided that this person gets like to fucking choose the name for everything? And I honestly, all their names just sound like they took some acid and, and listened to um, Carl Sagan on like 2x speed. While driving like, around on skateboards, which were. Which really would cool. be a great experience, right? <laughs> um, it has to be said that this guy, Neil uh, Stevenson, actually tweeted that he has no connection <laughs> to, to meta. this meta branding or everything. I respect that. I, I respect him for yeah, that, fair. you know. That was badass. Tarun, <laughs> what do you think we should call it? Uh, I have no real horse in this race. I'm not good at naming things, but I, I just really hate the fact that we've basically made shitty portmanteaus of like astronomical objects and very pedestrian concepts and somehow we just like keep doing the same thing over and over. Like, there's got to be something better than that. Like, people are more creative than that, hopefully. Unfortunately, those people don't have marketing prowess, so mm. we're kind of stuck. 
back in the the enterprise metaverse. <laughs> but by the way, that that is a real phrase that was used in a company call quarterly call and microsoft microsoft's quarterly call said they're going to make an enterprise metaverse just oh my think God. about that for a second now enterprise metaverse i honestly i i'm full support that's hilarious <laughs> looking forward for the memes yeah so good. I'm surprised people haven't didn't meme that, but it's like maybe like slightly too obscure. But like I, I, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I have one last point I really want to talk to you all about, and this is actually I I don't know if you have ideas on this yet, but something you were saying earlier, talking about all like kind of every activity you do on-chain is even more written and immutable than every activity you do online. I think people don't always realize that. Like, online, yes, it's there forever, but it kind of isn't. There are ways to get things offline. But once it's immutable on the blockchain, maybe you could hide the images if they're somehow changeable. But a lot of things are, like your actions, the things that you're doing are very much written and recorded for posterity forever. So, I mean, this is where ZK privacy and like the topic that we bring up often on the show comes in this idea that like if all of your activities are so fixed and and potentially like searchable, sometimes it's awesome because you could say like I was there first or this was my idea or something like that. But other times mistakes or bad choices or like what if you do curate something and the art that you choose changes meaning after some time? You know, like it gets used and in, in, in appropriated in ways that you didn't want to. And now there's a record that you curated or or even minted some something that's not good or not acceptable or something like that. So one of the thoughts, and this is something that we've been in the ZK community and in our chats and like we did a sessions where we talked about this as well. This idea of privacy and NFTs, ZK and NFTs doesn't have to be ZK. But I did want to sort of throw it out there. If I don't know if this is something you guys have started to think about or if you know of groups within the NFT space that are thinking about it. Or do you think it's like we're going to go ahead with this kind of phase and then later like have to sort of incorporate some sort of privacy? I'm not aware of anyone that's building a privacy solution for NFTs. And that was actually one of my concerns around February. Like I was not really into collecting NFTs just because I felt that it was exposing me more on chain. And at this point, you know, like being aware that I also took part of, you know, 2020 DeFi summer and what yeah, else, yeah. you know, like all of my mistakes, people can look them up, but <laughs> also they can look up really interesting stuff, you know, like they can look up, you know, how long have I been in the space? They can also look up my mistakes, which are many. Um, they can look up as well the directions that my life has taken because, you know, I joined a multi-seek, then I joined the other one. And that is really, really daunting. And that was worrying me. Um, I thought about this problem. I was I was wary of collecting NFTs because of these, but it's so much fun in the end that I ended up collecting it anyways. I think that actually, you know, it's very hard to solve that problem, but the very friendly solution uh, that we have around is actually just go Anon and Anon. start a good, a good brand new wallet. Uh, make sure you follow uh, everything to not dox yourself, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's not that hard to not dox yourself. Although it's getting harder. It is harder because it's like, 
it really is like mm. emails and it's harder to to sign up for things without yeah. some reference to yourself yeah i also i also just assume every single thing i've ever done on chain is is doxed and that it's just all out there um because if any normal human being wanted to look hard enough, they could probably figure it out. And I know Chainalysis and the government, if they wanted to work hard enough to figure it out, they, they, they could. I think that's just kind of like one of the realities of this space. And it's hard to get around. I mean, some of the, the ZK stuff, I think, is like going to very clearly be important frontier that like comes next i think we're right now in this period in which like okay like we're kind of explicitly trying to do a social thing here in which like identities anon or otherwise like are explicitly tied to these actions that like the whole point is like yeah if you curate a pump and dump pfp project that becomes a part of your kind of on-chain legacy and like we don't know how that kind of thing is is going to work out we've seen it a little bit in the last couple weeks just in terms of how many people have been getting doxxed for their mal behavior 12 months ago it's like if you did a lot of this stuff that people have been getting kind of more or less canceled for nobody would be able to figure out who who they were but the number of doxed addresses has just like exponentially increased even on a relative basis it feels like wow but we should also take a slight like maybe anthropological lens of like why this current boom is different which is that it's about flexing in a lot of ways and so people don't want privacy for that they want to be like hey look it's me fuck you i own five million fidenzas or what i don't know whatever (laughs) like i don't understand the hype beast subculture shit but like that's clearly was like a very big early driver before it became more broadened in terms of the user base in which case you you're actually very antithetical to privacy you don't want privacy Mm -hmm. and like the problem is like somehow when the movement seeded itself with this kind of like that type of persona, it can't really escape that. So I feel like you need another thing that like triggers the private movement. And I don't know what that is. Well, here's I want to share a few ideas that have already been like in our community been discussed. So I think so far when when you hear ZK and NFT, you think or private and it's like that the NFT ownership would be private, that the address connected to the NFT would somehow be obfuscated. But it's like, what if instead the NFT is like securely in the, the wallet, in, in an address, but the use of the NFT could be done, like you could use it in a ZK context. So potentially like you could submit the fact that you have the thing, but not submit what it is or that like maybe it, it like gives you Z- membership into something and it's not on the minting side or the trading side where the ZK part is, but rather in the this use when you talk about curation or something like this. Anyway, this is just this is what I'm getting kind of excited about. So I just wanted to bring it up. I've, I've been thinking about it for a while. Hadn't mentioned it on the air on the show. But uh, since we're talking about all these different ideas, I thought maybe I'd throw it out there. It's a super fun idea to have like the owner be mysterious of something. I mean, to Tarun's point, it's like, part of this flexing and stuff and like the antithesis of privacy is like the only way NFTs are getting value is as a result of who owns them. Right. So mm. something like JPEG potentially in terms of uh, creating this more cultural, culturally based community based value system, like would allow for 
value to not be so tied to individual identity. It's not that, you know, Vincent Van Doe has this thing, bought this thing, so it must be it must be good. It's that all of these people have thought it's cool and, you know, included it in one of their one of their exhibitions. Um, mm. And so I, I think it's a really interesting point that for some of the ZK stuff to around NFTs gain prominence, there does need to be a different kind of value system associated with them. Privacy has this hard part that bootstrapping it does not really provide people immediate value. It's always like they're they're betting on some future like counterfactual that someone will find them and like they want to avoid that, right? It's almost like buying insurance. No one wants to buy insurance, right? Everyone (laughs) wants, everyone like only buys it because they're forced to or they've been fucked. Right. There's only two mm-hmm. options. And so somehow like flipping that narrative becomes important. I suspect my sort of vague thesis is that if you have, say, DAOs or groups curating where individuals do not want their votes to be public, even though the DAOs, whatever, like the final mechanism for doing curation or picking, doing something related to, to the NFT is public such a mechanism might actually make sense where like DAO members don't want to influence each other on their curatorial decisions. Right. Because like that, there's obviously going to be bias if everyone can see things. Yeah. But that's like also kind of a bit of a niche application, right? It's like the basey hype beast people are never going to, they could never care about that. No, I just think it's a very interesting conversation in relation as well to conversations that have been taking place in sort of arts and culture for many decades now is questions of authorship, the importance of authorship, things, um, you know, when a work is finished, when it's not, when it's part of an artist's body of work and when it's not. And also, you know, obviously the whole discourse around identity being either performative or mutable in various ways. And so, you know, campaigning for like a a fully on-chain culture with no privacy provisions flies in the face of, I think, a lot of what people would have seemed to have been achieved uh, in those areas in the arts. Um, Artists shouldn't feel pressured, for example, to mint everything they make. And when they do mint it, what does that mean about the work, right? Uh, Can you mint a sketch? Can you mint something that isn't like, you know, a part of that top tier of things you really feel were complete? You know, obviously having everything traced back to these identities and addresses really foregrounds like the signature, right? And it it does foreground that kind of individual uh, entity. And also, like, I think there are some artists who reinvent themselves, um, either so metaphorically speaking. I know some artists who have three completely discrete identities. Um, mm. They make completely different work uh, as three different people. And, you know, how does that translate to this context? Right. All of these things, which is really thinking, I think, very laterally to how the space works and thinks at the moment are interesting things to explore. I don't have answers to any of them. Yeah. As you were saying before experiments. This is what we are doing. We are trying. Yeah. And my, the one I want to sort of seed to the audience in general is this one where we try to experiment with ZK. I think in, in some sense, we probably need privacy preserving DeFi first before we could actually imagine the NFT use case being palatable to people because like people can't even transact without giving out their email or like 
effectively right now, right? Like, okay, yes, I want to sell something on OpenSea. What am I going to do? Like hit refresh and like stare at the page 500 times? Like, right. So like, we still got a long ways to go (laughs) in that world. I totally agree. But I think there is an interesting idea here of experimenting with some of the ZK stuff in terms of like, maybe it's a minting contract where like, the minter is totally anonymous. Anyone can utilize it. And like you try and get big artists and like imitations of big artists, like all doing this thing such that there's like speculation around like, is this actually X copy or is it like one of, you know, X copies right. kind of followers or, or yeah, yeah, or, exactly. Or, um, or, or, or again, that's trained on X copy. That's auto generating X copies. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, where's the potential for like the fun of NFTs to allow for some experiment, an early experimentation around ZK that gets people who wouldn't use it otherwise to go kind of like play around and, and understand the, the technology. I think it's a really cool idea. Mm. Cool. Thanks, everyone, for coming on the show. Big thank you for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Thanks so much for having us. This was super fun. Thanks. Cool. All right. So I want to say a big thank you to the podcast producer, Tanya, podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks.